My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends, I'm just trying to make you some money. My job is to just entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. We opened strong today. Then the averages gave up most of the gains, and they're ultimately closing up just 141 points. S&P advancing 0.72%, NASDAQ climbing 0.71%. And you know what? You know why I think this is happening? I think part of it is that we've got too many stocks. Too many stocks. So with a bunch of new IPOs on the horizon, the market won't be able to handle all the supply. And when supply outstrips demand, prices go lower. I'm focusing on this because we're going to be talking about these IPOs endlessly. And I want you to know what's going to do to the rest of the market. That's why this market needs mergers. And we need them now. Before we get inundated with uh, new shares like from Lyft and Pinterest and Airbnb, Uber, Slack, not to mention Palantir, cybersecurity company, and the incredible loss-making we work. Even putting aside the supply and demand dynamics of the stock market, there are tons of industries that could benefit from the consolidation in this environment. But again, I am putting this all through the prism of all these IPOs because they're going to be very exciting and you're going to want to get in, particularly in Lyft. The beginning always works. So what needs to be consolidated? Let's take them down. First is oil. Now, we're seeing somewhat of a resurgence in the price of crude. That's a little surprising. It rose to nearly $60 today. But the oil stocks are rallying a lot less than you might expect. I believe the $60 lid could hold the whole group down like it's done so many times before. At the end of the day, there are just too many oil companies. I think the mid-sized independent producers need to band together in order to cut costs. Apache and Adarko make most sense. Apache's got incredible natural gas holdings in the Permian Basin. We did think they were oil, but it's really mostly natural gas. That gas has been landlocked, making it worth next to nothing. As a matter of fact, it costs them more to it was like they were flaring it. Now, because they couldn't get it to market. Now, though, there are new pipelines leading into Mexico, and that's a terrific market for Apache. And people are going to start realizing that Apache is going to be saved by Mexico. As for Anadarko, oh, it would be a good fit for any of the majors. Anadarko's got holdings all over the world, but it's been dinged by higher production costs, which contributed to the company's sickening nearly 40% earnings miss that gutted the stock in early February. Uh, what else? If I were running BP or Exxon or Chevron, any of the majors, I would pounce on Oxy, Occidental Petroleum, which is the best acreage in the booming low-cost Permian Basin. I bet any oil company that buys Apache, Anadarko, or Occidental will see its stock go higher. And that's why you do deals. Then the pipeline plays. The formerly Red Hot Group just can't seem to get out of its way. Enterprise Product Partners, Energy Transfer, and Williams can all afford to acquire at will. What should they buy? Well, you know, I used to be a big fan of Magellan Midstream, but there are way too many oil pipes vying for, for business in the places where Magellan wants to build. Take over candidate. Hey, I got another idea. Rich Kinder, the CEO of Kinder Morgan, he's bought tens of millions of dollars worth of stock of late. I don't think Kinder Morgan's current business warrants that kind of buying, but if Kinder can consolidate the industry, it could prove incredibly additive to his company's bottom line. Next group in need of, of consolidation? Oh, well, you're... The cloud cohort. Oh, my God. I mean, holy cow. We have way too many cloud companies. I mean, way too many. Think of all the cloud-based CEOs we've had on the show. Does a company like Guidewire, the purveyor of cloud-based software for the insurance industry, really need to be independent? Do we still need one more enterprise data cloud operator like Cloudera, which is cloudy and missed the last quarter badly? 
The truth is, many of these outfits would benefit from being merged. I mean, maybe Workday and ServiceNow should combine forces. How about Tableau Data, New Relic? Hey, stranger things have happened. You know what could spur this cloud consolidation? When IBM closes on its takeover of Red Hat, I expect a major pickup in growth. I am the only one who feels that way. I don't care. In retrospect, IBM may have actually gotten a bargain with Red Hat, even as the deal looked like a wild overpay at the time. No one seems to even pay any attention to the quarter just reported by Red Hat. It was extraordinary. I think it actually justifies the huge premium that IBM paid. And once they start seeing the benefits of the deal, thank you, Jim Whitehurst, other companies will follow in their footprints. Next group. I can't believe how many healthcare companies there are. I mean, really. I keep thinking the drug distributors, Cardinal, McKesson, they need to merge. The managed care companies, honestly, they do better if there were fewer of them. I know the CVS Aetna deal is hated, but when we spoke to CEO Larry Merlot, I thought he'd tell a compelling story. Yeah, okay, so maybe it's 2020. I got time. If Merlot can execute, I think the health insurers will end up wishing they made some deals right here. The group got Polax today off the news that Trump's Justice Department won't be defending Obamacare in the big appeal after a Texas judge ruled it unconstitutional. But I'm betting today's sell-off will mark the lows here, especially as Centene, CNC, Michael Nutter, is going to buy Wellcare, and they're going to buy Wellcare at a big premium. You know what? That could ignite the group when no one's expecting it. How about biotech? Uh, look, I don't even have time to list all the biotechs. I mean, they, they'd be good takeover targets. That said, some big pharma outfits like AbbVie and Gilead need to buy something here. They're cash rich, but pipeline poor. Doesn't that remind you of uh, Bristol Myers buying Celgene? Another industry need of consolidation. The payment space has gotten ridiculously crowded. People with these ETFs that cover them and just take sop in money. Fidelity Nat buys World Pay for $35 billion. Pfizer snaps up first data for $22 billion. I think it would make a ton of sense for Facebook to acquire PayPal here. They need a revenue stream away from social media now that they've gotten religion about not selling you out as a business. Uh, by the same token, American Express is doing very well. But it could do even better if it purchased Square for more small business exposure. They're always talking about small business. Next up, there's the transportation space. Now, you know I've been a fan of XPO Logistics, but we did say in the 90s, eh, okay? But there are too many companies in the delivery business. FedEx or UPS could use more capacity, both in Europe and here in America. XPO stock has lost more than half of its value in the last six months. Brad Jacobs, sorry. I think your company's a steal. Speaking of delivery, we have Grubhub as a public company. Postmates is coming public later this year. DoorDash is still private. And Caviar is owned by Square. Soon we'll have Uber Eats, too, after the Uber IPO. It's going to be good. Uber Freight's good, too. Now, if I were Grubhub, I'd try to snap up Square's non-core Caviar business. I bet both stocks would rally. And Square won't miss Caviar. They, They really don't promote it that much. What else? Last night I said Apple should just buy Viacom and CBS, create a massive film and television business. Today the New York Post reported that Viacom and CBS are in talks about merging on their own. Hey, it makes sense, especially since Viacom was almost blocked out of the ATT bundle because they might not have had scale. You need heft in this new world. Viacom needs CBS to get that heft. Put those two back together, have them run by Bob Backish at Viacom, and I can see a much higher stock price for Viacom and CBS. Nice move today in the stock. Finally, there's food. I mean, did you know the General Mills, Mondelez, J.M. Smucker, McCormick just today, PepsiCo and ConAgra, they all had good quarters. So many packaged food companies are making comebacks here. Do not let Kraft Heinz cloud your judgment. I think it's time to start buying them. All that said, you need to know that I wouldn't be this concerned about the lack of mergers if, it weren't so, if I weren't so worried about the coming onslaught of IPOs. If money managers want to participate in these deals, and they will, they will need to sell stocks 
that they already own to raise money because they're not getting money in over the transom. And that's going to put pressure on the whole market. For example, I think the FANG stocks will be used as a source of funds. Today, Apple was flying higher until it got hit with a surprise infringement ruling by the International Trade Commission judge. That's not related to the flood of IPOs, but all FANG will be under pressure because there's just not enough capital to go around. Guys, I know no one believes this. I have been, I have been attacked on Twitter for saying that I learned this in college or something, and I did, I took this class. But the truth is, that's what happens. Supply ruins demand. Bottom line, if this market's going to keep climbing, we need to see more deals. We need to see them now. Deals in healthcare, deals in entertainment, deals in oil, deals in transportation, in the cloud. That's the only way we make it through the upcoming wave of IPOs in one piece. And I don't know if we are going to get enough of them to sop up the tsunami of newfound supply. We are going to start the questions by going to Gary in New York. Gary! Thank you very much, Jim, for taking my call. That's quite welcome, yeah. Uh, Given the current rate stance of the Fed, the inverted yield curve, and the generally slow growth in the rest of the world, what should I look for that would me, what should I look for that would get investors to start considering financials and specifically JP Morgan? And is there a level you envision that the dividend would outweigh any potential okay, price? Okay, yeah, it's a ninety when Thanks that level much. is. Now I have to tell you, I said this morning on Squawk on the Street that I believe the banks are gonna report good numbers, they're gonna surprise people, but they are the house of pain. And I am not gonna welcome anyone in there with me. My travel trust owns JP Morgan, and it is a house of pain. And I don't want you at my sharing my address, okay? Stay off my Banks and my cloud. Ken in New York, Ken. Hey, Jim, how's it going? Ah, couldn't be better. How about you, Ken? Uh, pretty good. I called you actually for the first time back in September about this company, First Data Corporation, FBC, okay. after their CEO was on CNBC. Yeah. Um, I bought then. It took uh, quite a tumble, but then after Pfizer came in with an acquisition in January, it really helped out the stock. This month has been crazy. They picked up this Brazilian company and this German company, Acash, mm-hmm. and I don't really know where the stock's going anymore. Should I hold on to it? Or no, stop? it's time to ka-ching, ka-ching. We're going to find the next one. That one is done. We're going to go to, oh, we're going to stick with New York here. We're going to go to Bruce in New York. Bruce. Jim. How are you, man? I am good. How about you? Uh, good, thank you. Love your show. Appreciate you. your knowledge. I'm 58 and a first-time investor, and was wondering what your thoughts were on ACB and their leadership. Aurora. Okay, now here's the problem. If I say something negative about Aurora, my Twitter feed will have nothing but Aurora for the next 72 hours. It'll be Aurora. It'll be like an Aurora Borealis. So I would tell you that I like Canopy. I like, uh, then I like Kronos. And if people like Aurora uh, 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 Cannabis, they, they can feel free to buy it. And if you Hector me, remember, then all I ask you to remember, what happened to Hector in the, you know, in that Homer stuff, huh? I took that class. I took the IPO class too, so don't get in my face. Deals, deals, deals. The, those are necessary if we're going to get through this onslaught of supply that starts soon with Lyft. And I gotta tell you, it's gonna be all over us. Oh man, tonight. After Apple's announcement last night that it's moving into subscription-based gaming, what does it mean for a stock like EA Electronic Arts? I'll tell you, we're game on. Then, it's a cloud company that's up over 70% over the past year. Probably never heard of it. I'll reveal. But first, a look at the charts and some telling signals about where this market could be headed. I need you to stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. 
Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. I know a lot of people are confused. You're thinking, what the heck do we make of this topsy-turvy market? I totally get that. On Friday, we got clobbered. People started freaking out about this inverted yield curve, this bizarre situation where long-term treasury bonds are giving you a lower return than some short-term treasuries. Counterintuitive, right? But it is something that has historically been a pretty reliable signal that we could be headed into a recession. Suddenly, everyone but me is telling you this guy's falling. Then yesterday, we had an indecisive session. Today, the averages came roaring back. It's easy to get sucked into these day-to-day gyrations. But how can we get our bearings and figure out where the market might be headed on a longer-term basis, which is what you and I care about? How do we navigate through this increasingly volatile environment? These situations can be very emotional, and your emotions will lead you astray always. That's why I try to stay calm by making decisions based on empirical observation, not feelings. So tonight we're going off the charts with the help of Carolyn Baroden. She's that brilliant technician who runs the FibonacciQueen.com website. She also happens to be one of my colleagues at RealMoney.com, where I blog, to show you how to get a better read on this market. Now, Broden's had a terrific track record of late. Holy cow. End of January, she told us that the semiconductor stocks were ready to roar. They've been just getting a beat down. Since then, the Van Eck Vectors Semiconductor ETF, the SMH, and everyone calls it the SMH, has rallied more than 13%. Nice move. At the beginning of October, right before the market wide meltdown. She told us that Broadcom could be worth buying into weakness, even if you didn't wait for the pullback. It's not a 20% gain. So how is she feeling right now about the broader market? Well, I got to tell you, it's a little confusing. I want you to take a look at the weekly chart of the S&P 500. Broden's always looking for patterns in the action, patterns that tend to repeat themselves. For example, in early January, she noticed something she likes to call time symmetry. Okay, Uh, from the beginning of the S&P's peak in September to its lows around Christmas, the index declined for 14 weeks. As it happened, we saw similar moves in 2015 and 2016, two declines that both lasted for 14 weeks before they exhausted themselves. When Broden talks about symmetry, what she means is that these moves often repeat each other. So you got 14, 14, 14. Okay. now I know it seems silly, right? I mean, but you know what? It's worked. After taking a beating for 14 weeks, the S&P bottomed in late December, okay? And it's been a rocket ship ever since. Broden thinks the index could only be headed for 3102, right here, okay? Uh, Although she wouldn't be surprised if we get a substantial pullback before that happened. You know, I'm worried about the big amount of supply coming in, like I talked at the top. You know, that would kind of jive with what she's talking about. What do we need to watch here? Remember, Broden's methodology is all about taking past swings in security and then running them through a prism of Fibonacci ratios, a key series of numbers uh, discovered by the medieval brilliant mathematician Leonardo Fibonacci. For whatever reason, these ratios repeat over and over in nature. Think about it, shells, pine cones, flowers, and stock charts. Specifically, the Fibonacci queen applies these ratios to both price, that's the y-axis, okay, and the x-axis, uh, you know, time, in order to find key prices or key dates where the trend is likely to change. When it comes to the S&P 500, she sees a confluence of Fibonacci time relationships coming due in the next couple of weeks. Between today and April 5th, we are at the fulcrum here. Given that the market's been going straight up since December, Broden's worried that the S&P might be poised for a negative reversal sometime during this two-week window. So far, the index peaked last week on the 21st, followed by a healthy pullback, and this jives with her worry, timing worries, which is why she's recommending raising a bit of cash here 
to protect your profits. So, you know, she's talking about this than that. Got to be careful. Can we get a better read on the situation? I want you to take a look at the S&P 500 daily chart, okay? On the one hand, when you look at the previous short-term pullbacks that we've seen since the bottom of December, they've all terminated after $94 of downside. Isn't that great? $94. Right now, the S&P is down 42 points from its highs last week. As long as it doesn't fall for more than $94 from the peak, Broden thinks we're fine because that means the bullish pattern ultimately remains intact. However, if we start seeing a steeper decline, that changes things, and you might want to get more cautious. Here we are, 94, boom, okay? Got that? It's 94. On the timing side, since December, previous pullbacks have lasted for two to four weeks. I'm sorry, two to four trading days. See, three, 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 three. Okay, two to four trading days. It's now been three days since the peak last week, and we've been bouncing nicely. As long as this keeps playing out like another garden variety pullback, Broden says we'll be okay, we'll be fine. But if we get hit tomorrow and again on Thursday, a five-day decline, for her, that's a bad sign. If we do keep going lower, she points out that there's a floor of support at 27.22, which is where the S&P bottomed earlier this month. As long as we hold above that key level, Broden tells us the chart is on your side. So this is the number to watch, okay? All the traders, believe me, are going to be watching that number. And if it breaks below that, they're going to really try to knock it down. What else is she watching? Okay, this is a daily chart of the S&P 500 that is one of the Fibonacci Queen's favorite tools. When Broden's watching a stock on a day-to-day basis, she's always looking for buy and sell triggers. Triggers uh, like a particular moving average crossover. Specifically, Broden likes to keep an eye on the short-term five-day exponential moving average. I know that's a mouthful, but here we are. Uh, and then the slightly longer-term 13-day exponential moving average. When the five-day goes above the 13-day, that's called a bullish crossover. And you can see where it's worked and then, whoa. Uh, and, how we're, and then, of course, when it goes below the 13-day, that's a bearish crossover. How reliable these signs? Well, when Broden saw a bunch of Fibonacci timing cycles coming due in late September, the moving average combo was the quickest tip-off that the market was about to roll over. The five-day crossed below the 13-day in October, and if you were watching it, you know it was time to sell. While it's not a perfect indicator, Broden says it can be very helpful in keeping you on the right side of the market. At the moment, it tells us that the S&P 500 is in good shape, uh, but she urges you to keep an eye on this, Okay for something possible to change. Bottom line, the charts as interpreted by Carolyn Broden suggest that it's time to be more cautious here, very, very short term. At the moment, she thinks the S&P is still in good shape, but her Fibonacci methodology indicates that the market could roll over in the next couple of weeks. That's why she wants you to watch the action in the S&P and watch the five-day and the 13-day exponential moving averages, just in case they flash a warning sign telling you it's time to ring the register. My view, hey, when I look at this, all I can say is, Nobody ever got hurt taking a profit. Much more mad tonight. I thought it was game over for gamers. The once Red Hot group took a hit as Fortnite took the industry by storm. Could Electronic Arts have an extra life here? Is that move up for real? I'll give you my take. Then, how is a little-known cloud player changing the way companies like Lululemon, Siemens, Expedia, DoorDash act? I'm talking with the CEO. And how can the market rally when we got a pathetic housing start? Don't worry, I'll reveal. Stick with Kramer. What do you do when your business comes under attack by vicious new competitors and Wall Street turns against you? Sell, sell, sell. 
That's been the situation in the video game space. Last year, these once red-hot stocks, Electronic Arts, Activision Blizzard, and Take-Two Interactive, got obliterated as a sexy new rival took the industry by storm. Yeah, for you gamers, I'm talking about Fortnite! The gaming sensation that came out of nowhere in 2017 became the most popular video game on Earth. Suddenly, everyone wants these free multiplayer battle royale experiences, which makes EA, Activision, and Take-Two seem irrelevant. No matter what these companies did, their stocks just kept getting slammed last year as Wall Street gave up on the traditional game publishers and embraced the Fortnite model. Even when Take-Two released the long-awaited Red Dead Redemption 2, the second biggest launch of all time, its stock couldn't catch a bid. By the time the new year rolled around, the whole group had been written off and left for dead. Then something unbelievable happened. Electronic Arts, which has just reported a terrible quarter, Electronic Arts, widely perceived as the worst of the bunch, starts making a spectacular comeback. Why? Because EA figured out what you do when a new competitor's bashing your head in. If you can't beat him, join him. Yep, in February, EA released Apex Legends. That's a new free-to-play battle royale game, just like Fortnite. Nobody knew this thing was even existed until a day before it came out. The others were downgrading, downgrading, downgrading up that quarter. Wow, this thing's become insanely popular in a very short period of time. Thanks to Apex, EA stock has gotten its group back and it's up 29% year to date. Trouncing the likes of Activision and Take Two Interact, which has been one of my favorites. You know that's Strauss's element? It's a testament to what can go right when an old dog of a company manages to learn a new trick. I think EA's got more upside. Before we get into where I think you can head, uh, you need to understand why this one free-to-play game has been such a game-changer for the stock. For years, this group was on fire. Some of that was because gaming is a popular hobby. But most of it's because EA and Activision Take-Two figured out how to make more money off their customers. Well, they'd sell you a game, and then inside the game, they let you spend real money to buy all sorts of in-game items. These microtransactions created a rapidly growing recurring revenue stream for the major publishers. Wall Street loves recurring revenue. But EA and Activision and Take-Two only made that money if people kept playing their games. Enter Fortnite, released by Epic Games, a subsidiary of Tencent, the gigantic Chinese company. Over the past nine months, the Fort- Fortnite's grown from 125 million registered players to 250 million registered players, making it one of the most popular titles of all time. And it is sucking up all the air in the room, even though the companies told you that would not happen. Unlike most games, Fortnite's free. You can play it on just about any device with an internet connection. But once you're playing, they sell you all kinds of stuff inside the game. That's how this free game generated $2.4 billion, with a B, in revenue last year. More than double the sales of the top premium game. Now, the rise of Fortnite's been bad for all the incumbents, even as they thought that they wouldn't be hurt by these new games. And I believe them. I don't think they saw this coming either. EA got the worst of it. From its peak last summer to its December lows, EA lost more than half of its value. The company reported a not-so-high quarter in July. Then in August, management slashed their full-year bookings guidance and delayed the release of their next uh, big title, Battlefield V. Then the whole market went into a tailspin, and EA stock just kept getting hammered and hammered and hammered. Why not? These guys had developed a reputation for being the gang that couldn't shoot straight. It had been ages since the company had a genuine blockbuster. Even their largest, most consistent franchises weren't delivering. And hey, when EA reported its latest quarter in early February, the company disappointed again. I mean, it was terrible. I mean, now, once again, management was giving us some truly hideous guidance. Stock got slammed. Dropped 13% on the news. 
But you know what? This time it didn't stay down. Nope. Since then, EA's made a magnificent comeback. And it's all because of this new game that came out of nowhere, this Apex Legends. They're Fortnite killer. You got to understand, two months ago, this thing wasn't on anyone's radar. No one outside of the company even knew it existed. EA announced Apex on February 4th and released it the very next day, the same day as that horrendous earnings report. The game has a lot in common with Fortnite. It's a free-to-play online multiplayer battle royale shootout. And it is very, very, very popular. Within eight hours of its release, Apex had over one million players. Eight hours. Within the first 72 hours, we learned that more than 10 million people had played the game, with over a million concurrent players. EA stock caught fire within the first week. They'd hit 25 million total players. How about that? Well, with well over 2 million people playing at the exact same time. Again, the stock roared. Then three weeks ago, the company provided an update on Apex's first month. More than 50 million total players worldwide. Can you imagine this? To put that in perspective, 50 million is about one-fifth the size of the Fortnite player, player base, which is pretty darn good, especially since this game just keeps growing and growing. According to Matt Thornton, whose stuff I love, he covers EA for SunTrust, Apex Legends generated $92 million in revenue for the month of February. If these guys can keep that up, we could be talking about a billion dollars in annual sales here that no one was thinking about. Not only is Apex popular, it's also looking increasingly profitable. So how the heck did Electronic Arts, of all companies, manage to pull this off? What happened to the gang that couldn't shoot straight? Here's the thing. Apex Legends is not your normal big-budget video game release. Normally, EA has a playbook, and they rarely deviate from it. In the run-up to a launch, the company spends millions of dollars on advertising in order to boost pre-orders. Once the game comes out, they promote the heck out of it for a short period of time. Then it starts getting put on sale, and the company moves on to the next thing. With Apex Legends, though, EA let the developers, their subsidiary, Respawn Entertainment, do something different. Maybe because they didn't have huge expectations for Apex? There was no gigantic advertising push, no pre-orders. They aren't even charging for the darn thing. Because the whole point is to get as many players as possible and then sell them stuff inside the game. Instead, EA paid a bunch of popular video game streamers, people who play games for a living and, and broadcast them to huge audiences via Twitch or YouTube to play Apex Legends. Isn't that brilliant? Yet they joined forces with the biggest social media influencers. You know how much I like influencers, right? Thought leaders. And it worked. Plus, the suddenness of the announcement and the release created a perfect storm of free media coverage. Now, money managers who wouldn't touch EA two months ago, they can't get enough of it. They're, they're, they're learning the concept of thought leaders now. Given that the stock's still down nearly 50 bucks from its highs last summer, trading 23 times next year's earnings has been, you know what, more upside here. Maybe a lot more upside. Oh, and if I were running Apple, yes, I would pounce on EA and take to Interactive. I'd buy them. We know Apple wants gaming exposure. They had something in their arcade. Boy, would this ever jump the whole, jumpstart the arcade. And they're trying to grow their services business, which seems like the future of video games, too. For 50 or $60 billion, Apple could acquire EA and Take-Two, turning itself into a gaming powerhouse. And all those naysaying analysts would say, the future of Apple is ahead of them. You know how they keep saying it's behind them? Aren't you tired of that? But here's the bottom line. After spending months as Fortnite's punching bag, Electronic Arts has jumped on the Battle Royale bandwagon with Apex Legends. And this one usually popular game has turned the whole story around. That's why the stock caught fire. That's why the stock has more room to run. Gage in Florida. Gage. Hi, Jim. Thanks for taking my call. Of course. So my question is, is Activision Blizzard is re-releasing a game in this year's third quarter that mm-hmm. is arguably the most anticipated game ever released in the video game industry. Now, okay. it's a World of Warcraft classic. Now, people are going to buy it even though they don't like it, and honestly, myself included. 
Now, how should I trade with this information, and should no, I buy it no. now? No, I mean, Activision Blizzard has to... I mean, look, Bobby Kotick is a really smart guy, and I do expect him at some point to resurrect this stock. But it's still expensive, and I'm not a buyer. Um, you know, we need Battle Royale to get me going. Why don't we go to Allen in New Jersey? Allen! Jim, it's a pleasure to talk with you, sir. All right, back at you. I'm a Sirius XM subscriber. Okay. I love their music and sports channels, and I also listen to CNBC throughout the day on my car radio. Genius. Sirius, Sirius wants more higher-priced all-access subscriptions with people listening on phones in addition to radios. Apple wants more services revenue and more uses for the iPhone. Okay. With all the talk about the importance of good content, why don't I hear about Sirius XM as a takeover target? Okay, and Alan, it's an excellent question. App- but the answer is that uh, I believe Apple does not like the technology. They don't like satellite technology. They think it's old and not interactive. And uh, you know what? They're smart about this stuff than I am, even though, of course, their uh, past is better than their future or their prologue is better than you know, whatever. How about Steve in New York, please? Steve. Hey, how's it going? I am good. How about you? I have shares in IGT, and yeah. I was looking to trade in this company. I don't know if I should buy or no, sell. No, 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 no. They missed. They missed, and it's kind of, yeah, uh-uh, uh-uh. They do have a yield, but we don't want to own that stock for yield. We want that stock for growth. So I am not there. I don't want to do it. Okay, Electronic Arts brought its A-game with Apex Legends. I think the stock is a lot more upside. Much more mad money yet. Digital transformation is fueling rapid change in customer expectations. I'm talking to an under-the-radar cloud player that is smoking hot. Then, time to sound the panic alarm after a weak housing start number. I'll tell you what it might mean for the real economy. An order calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer. a lot of time talking about the cloud, especially the booming cloud-based enterprise software market, because that's where the money is. But this industry has grown to the point where I, God, I can't always keep track of the players anymore. Case in point, nearly two months ago, Jeff in California called in to ask about 5.9. That's F-I-V-N for you home gamers. And because I wasn't familiar with the company, I said I got to go back to some homework. 5.9 is the leading purveyor of cloud-based software for contact centers. Their platform helps companies cut costs and improve customer engagement. Can't beat that, right? Stock's been totally on fire, which is why I was hesitant to just recommend it without doing more research. I don't like to cuff things. This is an intriguing story. So let's dig deeper with, with Rowan Trelope. He's the CEO of 5.9 to learn more about his company and what's driving its recent outperformance, which has just been stellar. Mr. Trump, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, Rowan. How are you? Thanks for having me on. Okay, now I have to tell you, I hate it when someone calls me and I don't know the stock. And you know I try to be true to the show. Obviously, I guess you were watching. Yeah. So why don't you answer the viewer about what you do? Well, have you ever had a bad experience when calling up a company or texting or emailing and you just are sort of left wanting? Well, that's really because they're using legacy on-premises systems that are hardware-based. And they're just not able to keep up with businesses as they want to deliver a great experience to their customers. Right. So we are a born-in-the-cloud you know, all software-based system, all web-based, and so it is a totally radical departure from what has been done in the past. And what we enable those companies to do is to deliver a great experience whenever you call or email or text every single time. Okay, so let's say I call. Why don't we start with 
DoorDash. DoorDash. Okay, which I'm talking about tonight. Uh, and earlier in the show, talking about maybe we have too many of these companies, but they're so, they got to be so customer focused. They do. Yeah, and DoorDash is a great example. They're one of our larger customers. They were able to put their, and they, they have huge spikes in their volume, right? Oh Around God, dinner yes. time or lunch, right? Right. And I know you're a little bit in that business. So they, so they drive up into, <laughs> into these spikes, and we can scale up and scale down very versatilely because we're How? all in the cloud. I mean, that's like a, there's a hit. I know from our business, you know, between 6.30 and 7.15, we're dead. Yeah, well, our systems, because we handle you know, well over 100,000 agents from, from thousands of enterprises, oh, okay. we're able to sort of uh, absorb all of that load in the cloud. So if, if a company tried to do this on their own, they would have to buy as much hardware and phones right. and infrastructure as they would need for their peaks. Uh, and we can sort of l- average that out and do a great job. Okay, but how do you know? I mean, for instance, I was trying to order from Chipotle on Thursday, um, and sure enough, they said it was at 48th Street in Manhattan. I live in Brooklyn, <laughs> and there was no customer help at all. I mean, what, what's that? Well, that's one of the big problems that, that, that customers face is when, when they, we don't do the people side. Right. We only do the software, right? Okay, so, but they obviously didn't have it right. A lot of times they can't forecast that right, or they get a spike in right. volume and so on. And so what they try to do is they'll try to intelligently get you to, if you're trying to call, they'll try and intelligently put push you off and say, oh, we'll call you back when we're available, okay. or, we'll, or we'll, if you're a VIP, maybe you'll get through to, the, to, to an agent, but if you're not, maybe you get put into a queue for a callback, or they'll send you a text or something right. else. And we integrate all of those together, text, email, Okay, uh, well, chat. let's talk about something that's text. Speech to text. Now, that's something that's in your conference call that sounded interesting. Yeah, that's a huge deal for us. So 18 years, uh, when I was 18 years old, I got my first job in the call center, and I took eight thousand phone calls okay over eight months really and i learned three, i mean like yeah. hi how can i help literally, you literally yes. i'm ryan you know, you know i'm, I'm rowan Troll. Yes. how can i help you yes yes so <laughs> what i learned is three things first after you take eight thousand calls your brain is really good at predicting what people are going to ask you because it's the same call right, often, right, over and over and right. over again so the customer says three things you know where they're going okay the second thing i learned is that you can be really good after you take 8,000 calls because that's what customers want. They want someone right. who is an expert, who knows the problems, who right. understands. It can just jump, jump you right through the hoops, right? And the third thing I learned is that you want to leave the call center after you've taken 8,000 <laughs> phone calls because that was the last thing I wanted to do was stay there, right, right. dealing with this. I so knew someone who used to hit the call center for, for a major credit card company, and it's over batty. Exactly. So, and that's the, one of the biggest problems in the call center today, and it's one of the underlying causes of why you get bad customer experience, because you're talking to people who have only been there for a short period of time. Right. They're right. not great at that, and what we have found is that AI, we can use AI artificial intelligence. to train, yeah, artificial intelligence, to train the computer, actually not just listen to 8,000 calls, but right. we can actually have the computer listen to millions of calls, and take all of those calls and learn, basically, what it hears, and then sort of sit over the shoulder of the agent and provide, like, an expert assistant, right, almost like superpowers, in real time, this is what the caller is asking about. This is what you should say. So give them the next best action. What should they say next? Okay, so we had live person on recently. How do, do they integrate with you at all? They're doing something similar to this, but they're doing it in the, in, purely in the area of text messaging. Okay, right. It, right. Know, text and messaging, for, and mainly for very large enterprises. You know, we're, we're in the enterprise space as well. It's what's driving our Small growth. to medium, but you're getting bigger and bigger. We're getting bigger and bigger. Okay, so how about last night we had Pegasus, we had Pegasus on. Yep. So you work with them. We what do, do you do? Yeah, we work with all of the CRM companies right. to deliver this experience. Customer so relationship. So, di- yeah, so digitization is the, is the wave and the trend mm-hmm. that's sort of pushing this forward, obviously, with this companies like Salesforce at the head of that. Right. At the head of that. So we integrate with all of those CRM companies so that the agent who's on the other end not only can sort of get the call in or the message or the email, but also can basically see in real time, who are you? Right. And when was the last time you called? And that's all coming from the customer relationship okay. management system. So we work hand in glove with, with Salesforce, Oracle, Microsoft, Pega. Okay, this is an existential question. 
Okay. Why do you think that I had not heard of you? I, I have a theory. Okay. You guys are really good at kind of white label. People don't know who you are. You integrate perfectly. But how are we supposed to know from the stock perspective who when it's you and when it's not? Yeah, well, that's why we're on the show. We want people to know about <laughs> us, Jim. Thanks for helping. Uh, you know, we, we, we actually, we're totally comfortable in an enterprise environment being in the background and helping that okay. customer deliver a I'm great I'm not. I want people in your <laughs> stock because it's been such a great performer. I want to thank, uh, that's Rowan Trillip, CEO of, of Five Nine. The symbol, once again, is F-I-V-N. I want to thank a viewer for bringing it to my attention. And Mayor Bunny's back after the break. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready? Ski, dang, time for the lightning round. I'm going to start with Bella in Illinois. Bella. Hey, Jim. Thank you so much for your time. Of Thanks course. for all the inputs and market updates. And maybe a stock. So, I'm thinking of stock. Yeah, what's going on with this FCA? You have been holding the stock for, for nearly a year, and I'm running into a loss of 20 to 25%. Uh, so I know they they have a general uh, meeting, annual meeting. Okay, which, which one is it? Which I missed it. FCAU. Oh, FCAU. Oh, F- no, no, we're not buyers of any auto company. Although I do want to invite Elon Musk to come on during the oral argument because I know he follows me very closely. Elon, you're welcome. Okay, let's go to David in Michigan. David! Hi, Jim. Thank you for taking my question. Of course. Thank you for all that you do, man. It's just oh, incredible. man, you're too That's kind. Thank you. Awesome. Thank you. Hey, my daughter has a question for you. What do you think uh, about Camping World CWH? Camping World? That's Marcus Lemonis. Oh, that was so nice that she said that. He's the profit. I mean, he's a profit. Um, the stock's not that profitable. Uh, but you know what? Anything, you know, I think that this stock is bottoming. And I say that because I think camping is going to make a comeback and that both inventories are lean. I am, I feel very lonely in that position, but I do feel that way. Let's go to Karen in North Carolina. Karen! Hello there, Jim. How are you? Karen, I am doing well. How about you? I'm pretty good. And I have to tell you, Jim, you're my happy hour every weekday. Holy cow! Let's have boat drinks. <laughs> That's the truth. I watch uh, Monday through Friday. And here's my situation. Okay, yes, been, like, yes. I, I have been tracking a stock for a little while, basically doing research on its background and okay. also watching the pricing. Right. My stock is BX, the Blackstone Group. I like this stock. This is Steve Schwartzman. I think he's done a good job. You're banking with him. I'd rather buy with him than be banking against him. I'm going to say yes, and thank you for that happy hour. I got to tell you, I say we pull up a couple Coronas to talk about the stock market. Let's go to Jason in Alabama. Jason. Mr. Kramer, how's it going today, buddy? This is a good day. I don't know. How about you? Oh, man, spectacular. All right. I want to ask you about one of your charitable trust stocks. Sure. When are we going to get some traction with Citigroup? Oh, my. You know, Mike Corbett is buying. You can buy back as much as 8% of the company down here. It trades below tangible book. I know when tangible book is clean, the the handbook says don't sell. That said, I feel like you. Got a 3% yield. I'm bereft. I'm depressed. I need uh, need sedatives to own it, and that's not where you want to be. I would love Mike to come on. 
and just tell us why we should stick with Citi. Wow. Hey, I'm true to my word. That's who I am. Let's go to Alex in New York. Alex! Jim, I just wanted to say that Get Rich Carefully was extremely helpful and that I'm a proud member of Action Alert Plus. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you. It's my travel trust you follow on it. Go ahead. So I'm, I'm calling about the stock Yeti Holdings. Oh, Yeti! We are a huge buy. Buy, buy, Get buy, this. Buy, I go buy. to Mexico on Thursday night, okay? Do you know, and with a Yeti thermos, do you know that on Sunday it is the ice is still up? Thursday night till Sunday. You tell me that isn't a product you want to get by? I like Yeti! Keith in Michigan. Keith. Good evening, Mr. Kramer. Good evening, Keith. Uh, how are you? I hope you're having a good day. I'm Excuse actually me. having a pretty decent day. My wife's got to work really late tonight. She's got to close the Longshoreman at 11. So it's kind of a bummer. Anyway, that's probably too much information. What's up? It's good. Uh, I'm interested in MPC, Mary. I like Marathon. It's really well run. It's actually, I think, the best of that lot. Um, but you know what? Right now, the group's not getting the love that it should. 3.4%. Gary's running the joint. You can buy that stock. And that, ladies and gentlemen, Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Originally, this Batman. How could this market rally today after we got a truly pathetic housing starts number for the month of February? Just 1.16 million. That's down 8.7% to a one and a half year low and substantially below what people expected. Let's stick them down. First, as we've learned from practically every retailer, the weather was terrible in February throughout the whole country. Wet. Very rare occurrence. Terrible weather's not conducive to home building. Second, housing starts are now bumping up against very restrictive zoning laws all over America. The big growth areas, say, like San Francisco, have made it prohibitive for most builders to break ground, which is why you can find starter homes in the Bay Area valued for more than $1.2 million. Starter home. How about that, huh? Third, the state and local tax deduction is now gone, which sure doesn't help in many high-tax states, but I'm not going to blame that for the big shortfall. Fourth, we, we know student loan debt is ridiculously high something that causes younger people to keep living with their parents for much longer than previous generations. Hey, this one was up and out for me. I had to pay rent if I stayed one more month. My mom made my room into a den to accentuate the point. Finally, fifth, housing's a lot less affordable than it was even a few years ago, and this is what really matters. That's why they're building the same number of homes now as we were in 1960, when there were only 180 million people in this country, not 320 million as we have now. All of these things were already known, so it's not like today's lousy housing start figure is a huge shocker, even if it was we could have expected. So how worried should we be? Worried as I heard all day and read all day and was online all day? Uh-uh. Is the weakness in housing signaling that we really are headed into recession, what that inverted yield curve is telling us, proverbial canary in the coal mine, to be just completely cliched? No. 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 And no. Why? Look, when our impetuous, don't you love that, Fed Chairman Jay Powell decided to raise interest rates in December, in spite of my strenuous objections, he did accomplish one good thing. He cooled down the housing market to the point where it's more affordable, both in terms of prices and in terms of lower mortgage rates. The decline in 10-year Treasury yields has been a godsend for the industry, so I bet we get much stronger housing starts in the month of March. In fact, mortgage rates and raw material costs have been coming down. They've been coming down so fast, certainly faster than housing prices. I'm a big believer in both, remember I told you this, Lennar, the largest home builder, and I like D.R. Horton, the most affordable. 
Now, those stocks are up 27 and 20% for the year, respectively. It's been a great year for home builders, but they remain incredibly cheap on a price-earnings basis. And I bet they could be huge beneficiaries of pent-up demand now that we put the bad weather behind us. We got a very good number just this evening from KB Homes, and they are predicting a very good spring selling season. Now, today's numbers did put pressure on the stocks of some of the big housing-related retailers, Home Depot and Lowe's. I think they're both worth buying into weakness. Anyone selling these two stocks here, I think maybe get your head checked. Why? Because we're going into the outdoor season right now, which is Christmas time for these companies, as people start spending a lot of money on gardening and, of course, outdoor furniture, grilling, you name it. Home Despot's the best one. That's why we went it for my Chapel Trust, which you can follow along with all of your decisions before we make them by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Historically, the despot's done well when interest rates are going down. As for Lowe's, it's more of a turnaround play led by the terrific Marvin Ellison, who's doing a remarkable job of digitizing the company. Lowe's has been woefully behind on every aspect of customer relations management, and he's changing the lackadaisical and complacent corporate culture. Ellison's re-energizing the whole chain, one store at a time, and he's got a fantastic handle on what Lowe's needs if it wants to get more competitive with the despot. So don't be afraid of the hideous housing numbers. Be aware that this is a natural decline, which I think will be followed by an advance that you can profit from as housing enjoys its annual spring rebound. I like the home builders, and I like Home Depot, and I like Lowe's. Stick with Kramer. Watch for a wave of managed care mergers. Like I said, there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise I'll find it just for you right here on Made Money. I'm Jim Kramer, and I will see you tomorrow. Tomorrow.